You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. And now transparent sourcing is, it's in vogue. It's, but it's great because we want to be copied. <laughs> That's the other thing. We don't want to be the only bad company who's doing this sort of thing. And we don't want to be the only company that's clean sourcing. We want our ideas to be taken to whatever level they can be by as many other companies out there, even if it's creating competition, because overall, the impact is a positive one and, and it, it's in the right direction. That was Sharon Rowe, the founder of EcoBags and an award-winning entrepreneur. She joins me today to discuss what she's learned while steering her almost 30-year career as an entrepreneur. We also dive into what's different about today's business landscape, the relationship between your why and your financial metrics, and how important going is for getting your business going. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Sharon, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm excited for a lot of reasons on this podcast, but one of the things I'm excited about is you have a lot of experience, a lot of in-seat time as an entrepreneur and business owner, and you've seen a lot. And so I'm happy um, to have that conversation because it's always grounding and I think really um, really important for us to know about the global landscape of entrepreneurship and business owning as opposed to what we just might have seen over the last six years. So thanks so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome very much. I'm excited to be here. All righty. So let's start with origin stories because we'd like to know okay. how you got started. So how did you start EcoBags and how did that all work out for you? Well, you know, I started because I, I, just, I, I saw a problem and I needed to take care of it. And at the same time, I just had a baby. And at the same time, I was an actress living in New York City and that was filling seats, but not my bank account. And, you know, I was just swimming earlier today and I was thinking, ah, all the world's a stage, right? I'm an actor. I was looking for a stage. I wanted to have my imprint on some idea and I got a big idea. You know, my big idea was I wanted to clean up the planet one bag at a time. I saw plastic bags everywhere. This is 1989. This is 30 years ago almost. And bags that I brought home from the store ripped and broke. I couldn't even use them a second time. And I just I decided for myself I didn't want to do that anymore. And um, other people started noticing me bringing my own bags. And I thought, ooh, this might be something. And I discussed it with my husband. And I remembered bags that I'd used in Europe years earlier when I was traveling around. Um, and I thought, okay, well, maybe this is the idea. Let me, let me test this. Let me see if this is something that I can wrap my arms around. Because I, I wanted to have... I needed to make a living and I wanted to have a way to make a living where I would have a flexible schedule because I had a young child and I wanted to be in control of what I was promoting. I was not comfortable, and this even goes back to when I was acting in, in New York City, I wasn't comfortable promoting brands that I was not in alignment with. So that's kind of the origin story. I just started. I, I did have some business background, but it was limited. I grew up in a retail family, uh, one store, so I wouldn't call it a business. I'd call it a retail store. Um, I was trained as an actress, though, so I knew how to fail. 
I know how to fail big. <laughs> in fact, I went to the Eugene O'Neill Theater, National Theater Institute for a semester, and their slogan is risk, fail, risk again. So I'd failed a lot. It's not that it's easy. It's not that it's comfortable. Sometimes it's just horrifying, but I knew how to do that, and I'd had a lot of practice failing. And I also, when I went to college years earlier, the motto there was challenge convention. So all these things, I guess... You never know. All these seeds that you plant come to fruition at some point. You don't know when, you don't know where, but somehow they all conspired and got me going on this, what I call the big idea, you know, eco bags, which, by the way, was named at my kitchen table in between feedings. And we said, that's fine. Let's go. Let's do it. That's fantastic. And, you know, I was thinking about this. Um, depending upon where you live, say, in the United States or in the world, um, mm-hmm. reusable bags may be like a thing that is just part of the fabric of how you do things, or it could be a, a novelty, right? I'm, I'm, right. you know, sort of, sort of in the South in some places when I go home, I'm like, wait a second, you guys don't have reusable bags. What's going on with this? Right. 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 Um, well, you're in Oregon right now. So, I'm in Oregon. Yeah. I'm in Portland, Oregon right now. <laughs> so Portland. like, actually that's one of those things in Portland, you can't use plastic bags. Right. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And so you just have to be careful about where we are. But, you know, I was right. thinking about the eco bags, like, Let me explain the product to people so that they actually know what we're talking about. Sure, sure. Well, it's it's changed over the years, but the concept is the same. It's a bag that is reusable, so it's a it's a sturdy bag that you can put things into, whether it's groceries or the drugstore or your gym clothes, whatever, that you can reuse and reuse and reuse over time. I mean, it's a concept that's attached to a normal product, which back in 1989 you couldn't get very easily. Okay. But which in France years earlier and Germany and Spain and all over Europe, they had these net bags that everybody brought to the store because no one gave out free. And that's in quotation marks, plastic bags, because we all know uh, single use bags cost us a lot. But on the other end, on the waste cleanup. Mm -hmm. So very simply, a reusable bag is a bag that you can reuse again and again. We like to say if you can't reuse it for about um, 10 years, then it's, you know, the idea is not to add any waste, not to create any waste, and that extends to packaging. Okay. Now, the reason I wanted you to explain what the product is is because people who know what an eco bag like is, they're like, "Oh yeah, that's a thing. That's a thing right. that we have to describe right. to someone." Whereas right. you know, other people on the other end of the perspective are like, "What's this thing?" And that's what I love about talking about this because, again, 1989, it was an innovation in the United States, right? It was I'm not an saying innovation. it's not an innovation now. Um, no, 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 it's been widely adopted. I mean, Eco Bags is our brand name. In fact, Eco Plus Bags didn't exist before we made it up. Now it's almost become like a Band-Aid, even though it is a trademarked brand. But it is for this thing called a reusable bag, which in 1989, no one was thinking about. A little bit later, Ireland put in a tax, and we were actually part of that, which brought down plastic bag usage by like I think 90%. Then England, we were in Modbury, England when they passed the tax there. And now, I mean, there's kids who have grown up and they've never known not to say, uh, please use my bag or I won't take a plastic bag. Because part of this whole story is not just always using your reusable bag, but it's also saying no to a plastic bag if it's coming at you because you don't need it. Because why should you have, why should we use petroleum, which is, is a valuable commodity? to make something that we use once and we throw it away. And people say, well, I use it for my garbage. Okay, that's twice. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not good. So, You know, I'm super curious here. 
Um, you're at your kitchen table. You're thinking, you know, you're going to the grocery store. You're taking your bags. You're naming yeah. an eco bag company. Did you have any idea that it would go the way that it's gone? Like that eco bags would be basically a Band-Aid and we would be having this conversation about yeah, having right. to remind <laughs> people that it's a thing. <laughs> well, you know, no, not really, I guess. I mean, I knew that it was something that had to happen. And I knew that having this idea that this idea would catch because I could tell from the way people responded when I used it, when I shopped and they would ask me and they'd be curious. I mean, did I know it would become this widespread? I hoped that it would become widespread. I mean, I usually, I often say I wasn't, I'm not in the business of bags. I'm not in the business of reusable bags. I'm in the business of a cultural shift. My business is about shifting culture, about focusing the attention on the reusable bag so that it imprints the person using it and they say, oh, well, I don't have to have wrapped lettuce and wrapped carrots and wrapped cauliflower, that it's okay to bring things home without all this packaging that you throw out in a, in a nanosecond, basically. So did I know? No. Did I have a feeling about it? Yes. Did I, was I able to actually allow it to marinate and grow over time? See, I had that advantage, and the reason I had that advantage was not that we had any kind of wealth, um, which we didn't. In fact, we took in a roommate when I started the company, and I had a you know young family. Um, but I had other things that were a part of my why that were bigger or as big as managing and driving this cultural shift, and that was my time. And it was really important for me to have my time with my family. So it was okay that it was a slow burn for this to catch on. This is all pre-internet, <laughs> which is why it's really different now. You really had to pick up the phone and talk to people. You really had to go knock on their door. You had to have meetings. You couldn't simply send an email. If you sent a letter, you know, I would send faxes. Things just took longer. Um, so when it did pop, though, I was, you know, over the moon. I was at a conference real recently where they said the two things, um, actions that people have most readily adopted and adapted to that have an immediate effect on behavior in the environment is one, turning off the water when you brush your teeth and two, bringing a reusable bag to the store. And the whole world doesn't need to know about that. But when my friend Rose of Green Retirement, you know, looked over at me and said, it, she, she like winked, I like I had tears. I was like, this thing happened from a very tiny beginning, a very, very, very tiny but intense idea. It that, took root. Yeah, that's wonderful. And and what I want to draw out for that is just, you know, for creative people, for entrepreneurs, um, a lot of times we think about the product as a transactional sort of thing, right? But every product is an embedded message. It's an embedded social cue about different things, right? Absolutely. And whether you're buying or creating. And so to it's something a touch that, point. Yeah, so... Think about when you're creating a product, what cultural values you're instilling through that, you know, um, what are you propagating? What are you, what are you saying no to? And how right. does this, how does this affect things? And I know that makes it, you know, a much bigger consideration and you don't have to do it all at once, but just really think about you're, you're more often, you're not selling, um, atoms, you're selling a story. Absolutely. Right? And so be super clear about that. Um, Absolutely. 100%. I mean, when we started actually, again, where do these things come from? Sometimes you don't always know, but they come to you and they come together. Um, we had a very strong do no harm component. So from the very beginning, we only used 
um, worked with and used materials that were sustainably sourced and responsibly made. Again, this was not even a conversation until about five years ago. I mean, we had tags on our bags that said fair wage, fair labor, and nobody cared. And we almost took it off because that's valuable space, you know. Um, and now, you know, transparent sourcing is it's in vogue. It's but it's great. Because we want to be copied. <laughs> That's the other thing. We don't want to be the only bad company who's doing this sort of thing. And we don't want to be the only company that's clean sourcing. We want our ideas to be taken to whatever level they can be by as many other companies out there, even if it's creating competition. Because overall, the impact is a positive one and, and it, it's in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's one of the big difference between um, whether we want to – you know, go formal and say B Corps or social cause businesses. Um, I think the thing is, is that social cause ten businesses tend to have much more of an open source mentality or tend, you know, tend to have that or must have that. Um, right. Because it's not just about making your business and your profit better. There's, you know, some triple or quadruple line, which does make it open source. You know, mm -hmm. and I was wondering when I was doing the research, I was like, wow, how, especially from a legal and sort of trademark perspective and things like that. How does one contain this idea now that it's ubiquitous, yeah. right? Now now yeah. that it is the Band-Aid or the duct tape or the drywall or, you know, those yeah, type of I things. Don't, I don't know that you can contain it, but you can protect your own interests. And that's where business comes in. I mean, if currency – if business is a currency for ideas, right? And if you're an artist, a creative person, business – just think of it as the canvas for your ideas, right? It's also your income. And without gas in your tank, you ain't going nowhere, you know, without logs on your fire. So, and profit is so important. So how do you protect your idea, but not, you just have to be really good at what you do and you've got to be really clear with your, your structures, with your legal structures, with how you do business. You um, don't overextend yourself or you extend yourself to the, with the, the amount of risk that you can manage. That's with money. That's with any kind of capital, you know, social capital, financial capital, um, idea capital, right? You don't give it all away. You know, as a consultant, you can, you can give some, but the rest of it's about engagement. And really, it's always about engagement. I think that's where um, a friend of mine, Oni at Yale University, said, called it and so eloquently, he says, co-opetition. I mean, you work together because the ideas are big. You want to work together. You want to collaborate to address these problems. But everybody has their unique approach. And you have to find that dance. You have to find that way to do it. That's all I can say. I mean, you, <laughs> you just have to move in that direction. And, and if you're giving, that's when you'll get. That's the other big part of that. You can't go into something just to get. I mean, uh, believe me, there are plenty of people in business who are only there in there for the get. And I don't even care to work with them. You go in there to give and you will get because people are basically very generous in giving if you're onto something good. Absolutely. And just something to think about on the co-opetition front. When you really do an analysis of either game-changing businesses or super successful businesses – um, they almost always approach things from how can we make the pie bigger as opposed to how can I get a bigger piece of the pie for ourselves, right? And so they're the ones that create industry, create opportunities, create platforms, create new ideas, create like create these disruptions that then allow for new business opportunities as opposed to the right. ones that seize it. So 
um, co-opetition is, is not just one of those like heart-based ideas. It's actually super good business, you know. It's super good business because when you celebrate other people, they are happy to celebrate you. I mean, it's, it's basically one of the fundamental ways we do our social medias. We celebrate other people. We shine the light on them and then they shine the light on us. And it's, we're not just doing it for this sort of veneer. We mean it. <laughs> yeah, it's like everybody wants to be at a party. Few people mm-hmm. want to listen to a monologue, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, pulling everybody else in, everybody mm-hmm. else is having a good time, you know, and everyone feels better about being there. You're more mm-hmm. naturally to have, you know, a positive spiral as opposed to if it's come hear me talk, right? Yeah, 100%. And I say, you know, like I never really networked, quote unquote, until my sister got me out there. She said, you have to go out. And now I'm, I'm like, you have to go out and don't call it networking. Just call it going. <laughs> and when you go, just be, yeah. and if you're uncomfortable there, be uncomfortable, just keep going because the more you go, the more you weave yourself into whatever that community is, whether it's your local business group or your local arts group. And I really want to encourage artists to go to the business meetings because you never know what you are there to give. And in giving, even if you're sharing a story about, you know, your kids had a two-hour delay and whatever it is, you'll make connections. And in those connections, you'll find that people are really interesting, not just in what they do, but who they are. And you actually never know where that will lead. Like I met someone at a one of my first goings <laughs> um, who wound up, you know, being my stepping stone to the Oprah show. I, you know, I hadn't even thought about Oprah back then. I didn't even know who she was, believe it or not, because I was working all the time. Um, but I met her. She did this. I called her. She did that. And we, we clicked. I mean, and, and there's been many stories like that where people have just met each other and um, I've met people and we've just helped each other in different ways, if only to being the bridge to something else. Yeah. So call it going, call it community building, call it friend making. But get out there. Yeah. <laughs> right? Just get out there, even if you're an introvert. Because a lot of introverts are like, I can't go. I said, I bet you you're not the only introvert in the room. I bet you most of those people there are an introvert. And my friend Drew has a great uh, saying. He said, well, when I don't know what to say, I say, I don't know anybody in this room. Do you? I'm really uncomfortable. How about you? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I, we had a conversation with Vanessa about some networking strategies or uh-huh. going strategies, but um, I'm sort of borderline ambivert. And so just while we're talking about this, one of the things that I'll do when I go and I have that feeling of like, oh, mm. God, I don't know anyone. I'll go mm. find one of the other people, lonely people on the side on the corners that don't know anyone else and go talk to them. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and uh-huh. Because even when we're introverted, it's like in a small group. At like one or two people, we can still like do okay. It's like, oh god, yeah. there are forty five people here, and I don't know any of them. That's always it, unless you're an extrovert, right? Um, that's always a bridge. But just go and just find that one person, and that one just person find, can make it all yeah. the difference. Yep, absolutely. It's it's actually a lot like anything, right? Swimming. Those first few laps, you're cold. <laughs> it's it's cold out there, <laughs> you know. But then you warm up. You, you and the more you do it. And that, this really goes, again, to creatives, actors, I know, um, dancers, you know, it's discipline. And the more you show up to do something, the stronger that muscle called showing up to do something is there for you, and you have to practice. If you don't practice, you don't get any better. Um, and so that's why that whole thing of going, going, showing up, 
it might feel uncomfortable for 20 times. I don't care. Just keep going because that's where you're going to find all those little connections and realize that business really isn't about being independent, right? It's about being um, interdependent and everybody's relying on everybody else. And, and everybody, mostly I should say, really people want the water to rise. So what is it? All ships rise when the water, when the tide comes in. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it no. might be uncomfortable to get out there and get going, um, but what's super uncomfortable is being broken obscure, right? Um, as an entrepreneur, right? And so you gotta you gotta sort of choose your poison on this one. Which one? Which comfort are you going to take? And is it the comfort to stay at home, or is it right? The, right and maybe being broken obscure, or yeah. is it the you know um, discomfort of getting out there and going, and then having the comfort of financial prosperity and momentum. Exactly. You know, I have a friend of mine who's an artist, um, and she's just started going. But before that, how's anybody going to know what she's doing? It's not like there's there's magical people peeping into her, her studio wondering <laughs> what she's working on. You know, you have to you have to tell a story, and a story is any kind of story. You know, um, stimulates curiosity. And if you can stimulate curiosity, that's, oh, that's what you do. Oh, I'd love to see what you do. And, you know, I live in Metro New York area, and I think it was about six or seven years ago. I mean, sometimes I'm just really slow to the game. I was like, I I am living in a culturally connected, rich area. I mean, I'm only a couple degrees, one sometimes, from, like, amazing amazing people and, and who know people, who know people, who know people, who, who generously offer their connections. And I do that too. And um, it's so you don't really have to scratch at somebody's door and be afraid they're going to slam it. You, sometimes you don't even have to ask. I just got invited on a TV show um, just because someone in my book group said, hey, well, dot, dot, dot. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, so Yeah. And in terms of if you live, I guess, maybe not in a metro area, there's the internet now. And if you show up to give, not to get, that's when you get more in return. Well, it's the whole make like creating your own luck sort of scenario. Like you find that incredibly lucky people travel in packs, like what you're talking about. Like they're well-connected people and they're just serendipity happens. Like you want this, you want to meet Oprah. And you're like, I don't know who Oprah mm. is, but yeah, right. Um, it's very hard to create serendipity you know, at home by yourself, disconnected, right? So on and so forth. It doesn't happen. And so whether you're using virtual or physical, you know, going, get going, right? right? Um, get going. Because yeah. that's where serendipity happens. Now, we've alluded to a few different things. And, and I'm super curious to hear your take on it. Like you got started in 1989. Yeah. Um, we're recording in 2018. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the world of business and entrepreneurship and everything is different, right? Um, right. Now, you could go on, you know, a lot, but go in a lot of different directions with this. But what do you think are the three major differences between um, getting going and getting started now or being in business now versus when you started? Oh, wow. Three. Limiting me to three. Um, I, I think it's easier and less expensive to get going now because of the internet and all the tools that are there um, than it was even maybe five or 10 years ago on the internet because of all the, you know, the plug and plays and things like that. But I think it's more challenging now to have 
your idea heard and to find the communities that you need to speak to, if only because of volume and niche. I mean, Seth Godin says, you know, find your tribe. Well, all these tribes are splintered now. There used to be, nobody knew what tribes they were part of back in 1989, except for maybe, you know, I was in the acting tribe and my husband was in the musician tribe. And if we had gone to a church or a synagogue, we would have been in that tribe. And we were in the hiking tribe, you know, they, but they were much, much, much broader. Um, now they're much more defined and select and people may belong to many, many tribes, but their attention is split across them. So the, how much they pay attention to any one of them is, I don't know, it's harder to get people to sit down and pay attention. And so you have, I think someone told me you have about nine seconds to connect. It might even be less than that. And there's a lot of a lot of competition out there for your attention. That's what the competition is. And it's not just for new products. It's for products, for ideas, for news. I mean, we're in a, yeah, where we are now, um, you know, with our government is just, it's just, it's crazy. There's just so much blowing at you at a time. So I think, so that was two. So it's easier to get going and less expensive, costly. It's harder to have attention paid and three, I don't know, I, I might just lay it on two, on two, except that finances are always part of my, my story. I like to talk about tiny in terms of profit and tiny in terms of um, you need cash, but you don't just need, you need capital. You don't just need financial capital. You need social capital. You need creative capital. You need all sorts of things. And so you really have to Slow down and take stock of what you have. Maybe that would be the third one, that we're moving so fast we don't realize that we have a lot. And maybe we don't need more. Maybe really what we need is less of some things so we can focus in on our big why. Because you really, that's what you need. You need your why. So you, it's easier to, to get on the web. There's so much noise out there. Uh, but what you really need to do is you really need to hook into your why, your deep, deep why am I doing this and why does it matter to me and how am I going to execute this? You've dangled a relationship there that I want, that I would love for you to tease out a bit more. And mm. you went from um, profit, cash flow, knowing your numbers to your why. And I think in your head there's a connection there. A big uh, connection, yeah. So what is that connection? That connection is knowing that I think no matter what your why is, your big why, your deep why, it could be your tiny, intense why, that our culture requires us to support ourselves. How you choose to support yourself and your family is a personal choice, but there are structures around it that also dictate a lot of that how, like where you live, what housing costs are, what car costs are, how much you want to save for retirement, um, if there's even a such a thing as retirement, maybe when you don't want to work as much, just call it that. Um, how do you, where do you want to travel to? Where do you want to hike? Where do you want to swim? You know, you get to choose and build your life if you keep that active. I don't believe that someone's just going to show up and 
at your door, my father used to say, with a pizza. I'm not going, because I'm in business and I've seen the ups and downs and I've seen the risk flows. I think you have to meticulously forecast and work with your forecast to, to build the road that you want to be on. And, and it has to be very connected to your why, because like my why is, um, is let's say, very simple. I have one house. I don't want multiple houses. So that's not part of my why. I have one car that my husband and I share. But that's a very conscious choice. Um, I don't know if I'm answering you. It's, 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 it's that intentionality that's tied to how your why, how you want to live your why, and what you need to support your how. Absolutely. And when we look at it, um, life in general, but, you know, we're, we're focusing on business a bit. It's really about a series of trade-offs, right? Um, what are you trading for what? Um, and your why will help you make those trade-offs in an intelligent way. For instance, you, if you had a really strong purpose around having multiple houses and multiple cars, um, especially in 1989, right, um, that, that might have you know, altered some different decisions, like you would have made different trade-offs, right? Um, you, yeah, you may absolutely. have made different trade-offs, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But that wasn't part of your why set, your why matrix, as it were. Right. And right. so it enabled different options and different free spaces, right? Right. It really wasn't even a trade-off because I knew very specifically I wanted to, like the whole summer off. My husband then became a teacher. And so we were on the academic calendar. Um, so I wasn't going to work in the summer. So that meant I wasn't going to be in business in the summer, which meant I wasn't going to be transacting business in the summer. Okay, pre-internet, you know, 25 minutes for a download for one email. So it, there was a, a luxury of time back then. Um, but it, but there, it informs other choices too. If you know, if you go to the way back when I had small children, we never, we hardly ever, and almost never took them out for lunch when we were on hikes or, or traveling anywhere. We always packed our cooler. Again, you know, that's a very specific food choice, but it also, I was just interviewed for another article, saved tons of money, which I didn't have to make. Because I never really bought into that idea that you have to work hard to make a lot of money so that you can spend it on stuff that you don't really need or want. It's like leaving the water running. If you leave the water running, you're paying for that. If you leave the lights on, you're paying for that. You know, um, if you don't consolidate your grocery trips or wherever you need to go in your car, and so then you run out four times a week instead of once a week, you're paying for that. And when you start looking at every single thing you do in, through that lens, and because what's more val valuable to you is your time, and you prioritize your time and you discipline yourself so that your time stays as your priority. And I'm not saying this doesn't blow up every now and then. You know, I always say about at least 20% of the time it all falls apart. <laughs> um, but that's so it's not so much a trade off. I don't, I guess I don't like the word trade off, but it is, it can be seen as a compromise. But it's not a compromise if you never really wanted it in the first place. You know, if going out to a restaurant is, is a, um, is for a special event as opposed to a regular event. Um, if getting a coffee in your favorite coffee shop is again, the treat you give yourself as opposed to uh, an expectation you have that that should happen every day. I mean, that doesn't define you. What defines you is 
a lot of other things, <laughs> not that. Absolutely, and it works in reverse, right? And so there, I'm thinking of the uh, mustachians from Mr. Money Mustache, right? It's uh, <laughs> it's a it, it's, it's a it's a thing. I'll have to tell you about it later. Well, okay. I'll okay. tell everybody. So, Mr. Money okay. Mustache, if you Google it, it's it's a particular approach about manage about making, managing, and spending money, right? And so um, the uh, the author or the the founder uh, of the blog um, was able to. Um, save up and be retired by the time I think he was in his mid thirties. Right. And he wrote about the process of doing that and so on and so uh, forth. Uh-huh. So there's a methodology behind it. And now there's uh-huh. a community called the mustachians, right? It's a great thing. Right. And so I love this, <laughs> um, but they have different priorities than the rest of us. Uh-huh. I'm not trying to say they're better or worse than they're, they're, they're uh-huh. focused on a certain type of thing. But what I'm saying here is um, it, it works in reverse in the sense for you might figure out, I don't feel like doing my gardening or cutting my grass. I'm willing to do this other thing, right, and have someone else, you know, cut my grass and do things because that's not something I value and that's not where I want to save my time, energy, and money. Right, um, it generates an economy. <laughs> it generates an economy. So um, the reason I say this because a lot of times when we talk about trade-offs or we talk about you know managing expenses and, and being intentional about choices, mm-hmm. um, one reaction that I've heard from a lot of people is it seems like it always tells you what you can't do. <laughs> Right. And always sort of frust- like it's frustrating right. in that way. But it's like, no, no, no. It's being intentional about the choices you do make so that you can make the other choices you want to make. Right. And exactly. You get exactly. to you get to be in charge of that. Yep. It buys you your freedom. Literally, I, and, you know, look at that term buys you your freedom. That's a purchase decision. Words are really important here because they are what drive us ultimately. Um, and. It, it's challenging. I mean, especially if you're in business too, because if, if you have a business, um, whether it's a, a really small home-baked business or it's a couple million dollars, you know, ours grew seven, you know, it, it was quite large and it still, you know, wouldn't be considered, um, you know, at, at home. I've got staff, I've got overhead, I've got relationships, I've got partners. You just, you sort of grow into managing it Again, along your why. It just, it's again, it, it, you buy your freedom. You're buying your freedom. So sometimes when we start talking about, say, financial metrics mm-hmm. and we start talking about purpose and mission, I think a lot of creative folks think that those are actually in competition. Like if you, if you pay attention to the money and your profit and your cash flow, you've sort of lost the soul of this other thing that you want to do. Um, have you experienced that? And what do you normally say about that? No, not at all. But that's because I've been really, we've adhered really strongly to our core principles, which is, you know, do no harm, responsible production. So we wouldn't, we wouldn't go there. We, we'll say no before we'll, we'll change that. But that's our brand. See, that's the key to brand. However, I will say, and I just had this conversation this morning, um, if your goal is to have a long-term relationship with someone and you have an end with them and what you are adhering to, they just can't get there with you. And you can compromise a little and they can compromise a little so that the door opens. You have a greater opportunity of continuing to do work and business with them and have influence with them than if you say no. As soon as you say no, the door is closed. If you say yes and, just like an improv, the door stays open. 
how much you can say yes and is really has to go to what you're comfortable with. I mean, that's where ethics comes in as well as brand. I mean, I there are things I would definitely not do and there are people I would not work with, you know, and it would absolutely mean if I got those jobs and said, yes, it would, I would get that business and I would make that profit, but I wouldn't sit well with me. So it's, I wouldn't do it. And I know a lot of people who are like that too, you know, um, but if you have an opportunity to educate someone and to bring them along and you can keep that door open for that story and that conversation, there's opportunities there because not everybody sees it like you do or like I do. And you can't impose it, but you can create an invitation. And the invitation is alluring, like what's on that other side? You know, what's going to happen here? So with that, you know, I think however that applies to a business or not, you know, if like you're an organic baker and you only bake with organic um ingredients and someone comes in and they want you to uh, not do that and, and just make something with, I don't know, toxic flour, <laughs> you probably would say no. But if someone came in and said, you know, I love what you do. Um, geez, I, I just have to spend a little less on that. You might say, well, you know, I do have an ingredient that is, you know, I can use this ingredient versus this, like maybe you have your premium and you can use your superior ingredient or whatever. I'm not saying you to go off organic. I'm just saying, you know, to use the middle ground one, or maybe I'll do cupcakes for you. And, you know, there's just different ways to do it. So aside from starting your business, um, what was one of the (laughs) toughest, (laughs) what was one of your toughest choices and how did you like, tell us about that and how you made the choice. We made choices in life. No, in business. Well, you can say in life, oh. but um, since I started my business, since you started the business, because that's a tough choice with in the context yeah. you were in and everything like that. But oh, probably the toughest choice I ever had to make was first hiring a CEO to come in when the recession hit because I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't think straight because I mean too many balls were falling, and then when I had to fire him, <laughs> how's that? <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about that if you can. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, you know, the recession came in 2007, and that was right after we'd had a complete rise to the top, let's just say. You know, we tripled our our gross. We we were on Oprah. We were featured on Oprah. We went from 700 to 2.2 to 3. Zoom, like a, a, you know... But you have to actually look at what 700 was back then. But, you know, anyway, and but not just we didn't just do that in numbers. We went from two people to like 10 in under a year. And we were doing great. We were doing orders hand over fist. We were getting, in, you know, inquiries from Fortune 500 companies. Time magazine featured us. Glamour magazine featured me. I had a lot of hair and makeup day. And anyway, and then the recession was coming, you know, like Chicken Little. The recession's coming. The recession's coming. And that was in 2007. And we thought, oh, we're impervious to this. This won't hit us because we are on a solid upswing after years and years. This is 2007. I started in 1989. Um, and nothing hit us. Nothing hit us until all of a sudden it hit us like a ball, like a solid mass coming at you uh, because – 
everybody who we worked with, it affected them. So the whole pie started to shrink. People started to short pay. They started to disappear. I have friends who went out of business. They had a $6 million business. Boom, done, like in a year. Things were just falling all over the place because of the financial crisis. And I didn't react fast enough because I'd never seen this before. You know, and I'd never had this many people and I didn't react fast enough. So our sales were plummeting, not because of what we did or didn't do, just because of external factors. I kind of didn't know what to, I kind of, I did know what to do, but I didn't have the courage to do it. I didn't have the courage to cut everybody, to, to, to release employees and, and to cut back time and to really trim where I needed to. So I went to dance camp and I, I mulled about this in the woods all by myself. And I thought, I need to get someone. And I'd met someone through someone, one of these things, and he seemed fine. And I said, okay, let's do it. And he actually put, he fixed the boat. He got us on solid ground. Um, and then we were we were sort of flat for a few years and I kept watching him and he was doing less and less. And I thought, I know how to do less. <laughs> so that's when, when I, I said, this isn't going to work anymore. So that was hard too, because I get very invested in the relationship, but the relationship with him was nicking my pocket in a very deep way. And unless I wanted to, work even more, which I didn't, because remember one of my ethos is not to, is to work as li- as little as possible actually was, is still sort of one of my values. Um, I would have had to work a lot more and I would have had to support him. Um, and so we had to have a parting of the ways and that was hard because I really liked him. So that was one of those really hard things. And then even still, I mean, we, we came back but we, we've never gone, we haven't reached where we had been. And, um, and when we came back, interestingly enough, because of the recession, a lot of companies that had been watching us came in to our space. And everybody was, I mean, like I could name probably about 10 companies that were doing what we were doing. So then there was immediately more competition. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them we decided to co-op petition with, <laughs> uh, but others we, we didn't because their values weren't the same. Was there, like looking back, was there a major opportunity that um, with the information you had at the time, you know you should have taken, but didn't? Um, and yeah. So tell us a little bit more about that too. Well, I mean, what I really needed to have done was understand that, and this is hard this is an old way of thinking and a new way of thinking where they meet, which is when you have employees and you have a team, the expectation is that they're going to be compensated a certain amount and work a certain number of hours on a consistent basis. And the challenge with business is that it expands and contracts. And usually the expansion, the contraction averages out so that you get that normalcy. What happened in the the Great Recession, as we call it, is it did we didn't the average point the normalcy was way lower than it had been prior. 
So I needed to trim faster. And it wasn't it wasn't just um, the team members. There were other things. There were a lot of places that were, where we hadn't been paying attention. There was leaks. Um, so those really boring things you have to do, like every year review all of your vendors to make sure your um, – you know, the the agreement you're on is the most cost-effective one for you. You know, all those things we hadn't really paid attention. Probably we had too many office, you know, pens and pencils in the, in the, in the you know, office supply closet. We weren't paying attention. We we're probably going out to eat too much. You know, we just, we you get used to doing things a certain way and you cannot only look at your business. You have to look at your business as one small dot in this much larger world and you're connected to this world and you have to see where you are in relation to it at all the time and make those micro adjustments and sometimes really much larger adjustments. And that's what I didn't do. Yeah. Fast, fast enough because speed is key. (laughs) Well, speed is key. And I think part, part of the thing is around that time, that time I think is where we saw maybe a few years before that an inflection point in speed, like things sped up really, really quickly and yep. so ways that you may have made decisions, say, in the early 90s, you might have had more time, right? But yeah. by 2007, you don't have nearly as much time to make that decision. Right. And not for me, but for many other people I know in business who who have business, if they've gone out, they've gone out, or if they've restarted and rebooted, they're doing fractional employment now. I mean, when I first started, I called it a satellite company because it was me, but I had any number of people who I was in regular, you know, um, communication with who are part of my team, it's gone back to that. It's now this glorified fractional worker. Well, that's called a freelancer (laughs) (laughs) or a contractor, you know, um, because with a contractor or a freelancer, you can expand and contract. It's by project or it's, you know, you can renegotiate. An employee team is different. You're making a commitment to be to compensate people for their work. And so as you're, as, as a team, you have to produce to a certain level in order to afford that, which is why ski areas, you know, are in grave trouble when the climate shifts, because if they don't get snow, they don't have a season or, or restaurants, you know, if, if a road goes in front of them and they're going to start, you know, construction on it and it cuts off traffic. Yeah. I mean, there's a million ways this this impacts. Yeah, or taxi companies with Uber and Lyft, right? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I actually took a ride with an Uber guy recently in, I think I was in Los Altos. I was going to a, an author's retreat. And um, he said when Uber first started, it was amazing because it was the additional income he needed. Uh, but now there's so many Uber drivers, the price has gotten pushed down. And there's competition out there. So, And everything's happening much faster. Like you said, so how do you adapt and how, how do you stay sane and how do you, you know, manage your, your, your family and what you need now and what you're going to need, you know, and build some kind of bumper for the future. Or maybe a lot of people don't even have any bumper for the future. So I'm 60, so I'm looking at that now. I mean, I, I have to, um, I didn't really when I was 40, but I should have been, but I, you know, was an actor starting a company <laughs> or a little bit before that. Yeah. Yeah, as I've talked to um, a lot of people who've been in business for a while, um, the, the common trend that I see is that um, businesses need to be um, 
stronger on process now than they used to, right? Because um, one way that, that I've sort of summarized it is like you can choose to run lean by choice, Mm-hmm. or you can wait until you have to run lean by necessity, right? Uh, right. <laughs> that's uh, I've never heard that, but that's so true. Right. Yeah. And when you have to do it by necessity, it's super hard because you've got to let people go. You've got to like, you've got to alter relationships quickly. It's normally in a sense of duress and you don't have that time that you would, that you might otherwise like to make things smooth and so on and so forth. So if you run it by, if you run lean by choice in the beginning, you, yeah. you, you have less of a downside when a recession hit. But again, at the same time, when a recession like that hits, a lot of rules are out the window. People short pay, like um, oh, re- the short pay killed a lot of people. Oh my god! Yeah, and you realize that. I mean, I think what happened, and maybe happened with your product, is that there were a lot of products that people thought were necessities that were actually discretionaries, right? And so, if you're in one of those places where it's in between, and people can make a cheaper choice to get the same functional thing done during a recession, that's more likely to happen, right? right. And so, if they don't have to make the choice to go with you. Yeah, that well, has a cascading was, effect. Yeah, our thing also was because we were mostly a wholesaler B two B business, so a lot of the organizations, you know, nonprofits that worked with us and um, social enterprises and natural foods products, their budgets shrank. It's it's a, we're all together in this. When budgets shrink, you know, they come. It's not like they did, they left us in the dark, but instead of saying hi, I, I need a thousand bags for Expo West, they said, oh, we need three hundred. So it's just, it's a shrinking of all this. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I find for us, I, I mean, find, go ahead. No, I was going to say, business is, is not static. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, not like you get to a certain point and you go, yay, but that's what we did. We, you know, we grew exponentially and we were like, we were living fat. Now we're very, very lean. I think you should run any business like a startup. Yeah. You should run it like a startup. Every, you know, you can budget for experimental, but then pull it right back in. So looking at where you are now, um, what's the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? You know, growing the business. I mean, we have customers we've had for almost 30 years, and we have new customers coming in every day. This is both, we sell to consumers, that's not the most of our business. We sell to uh, business um, bulk, you can call it bulk or wholesale, whatever you want to call it, um, mostly. You have to understand that in business, you have to get someone's attention you have to be put into their workflow, which requires their time and attention. And then you have to serve them or service them so that if they've taken the time to put you in their system, literally, an order from you, that it's incumbent upon you to keep that relationship going because they're dealing with 3,000 of you, you're just dealing with them. And to find those new relationships where you have an understanding of what they're doing, why they've picked you, why you're working together, I think it takes time to establish the relationship. And we say here, since the very beginning, we are actually very high tech, but very high touch. We pick up our phones, 
We talk to people. We're curious about what they do. We look up, you know, what they're doing. We're saying, what else can we do for you? What do you need? So again, it's the give. We're, we're here to serve you. <laughs> it, it's ch- more challenging now because people have more on their plate. And I know that more teams are working with less. And so with more organizations working with less, even Fortune 500 companies have fewer people in departments. You have to find that special way to bond to serve them. It's, it's really always boils down to relationships, which is actually why now, too, I think going to events is even more important than ever before. Conferences, places where you can really connect with people, not to hear the speakers. And it's funny to say that because I am a speaker and I love hearing speakers, but I should say not just to hear the speakers. Because when, to go to hear a speaker, you don't, it's not just about being there. Then take that conversation, what you heard, and turn to the person next to you and have a conversation about it. Um, it's, you have to strengthen that sense of community around those ideas that are important to you. Um, and that's where business comes. And that's actually a slower burn. Yeah. Hi, I sell barrettes. I don't I don't need barrettes today. So, you know, I sell balloons. I don't need balloons today, you know, because it's never about what somebody needs in that exact moment. It's whether you're they're going to think, oh, right. Eco bags. I met that woman at that that speech that Charlie Gilkey was doing. Right. Right. We sat down and we talked about our dogs. I'm going to call her. That's where it comes from. You know? Yeah. When we win the war positioning, like we end up lodging ourselves in someone's brain. So when they think eco bags, there's only one person that comes up, right? That yeah. type of thing. And what I like about what what I love about what you said is like conferences, workshops, things like that are one of those few times where people have free attention. Right. Um, and whether or not they think about it that way, that's the one time they're looking for new things. They're not necessarily watching their phone. They're not necessarily occupied with what's going on in the to-do list. So the, the sort of getting people's attention is different at conferences. And you're right. It's a great, it's a great place to do that. And especially I find at a retreat or a conference, if you can leave your phone in your room, you get more value. You can always go up at lunch and check it. You know, be really disciplined. You get more out of that conference than if you're sitting there and you're bored for one second, then you start checking email and the next thing you know, you're on Facebook and the next thing you know, whatever, you know, you're checking weather in Aspen, wherever you are, (laughs) you know, our brains want to be busy. So it, it takes a lot of discipline to, to calm them and focus our brain down. Absolutely. We can, we, yeah, we can talk about that for a long time, that, but I'm conscious yeah. of the time. Okay. Um, and it's, it's been a fantastic conversation, Sharon. But yeah. as the guest for today's show, you get to leave yeah. our listeners with an invitation or a challenge, right? Whichever resonates with you. So based upon okay. what we've talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners um, to do? Well, I'd say because your listeners are right where I started, which is the creative community. So I really know where they're coming from. I don't know where they're at. I would say that this book that I've just written, The Magic of Tiny Business, um, really speaks to how you can dive into your why and then execute on how, keeping it real to yourself, but building something that sustains your life. Which, um, And I think my invitation would be for people to read it and share it 
and to know that you you have the you have enough even if you think you have nothing you everybody has a, a sum s u m of some things um and i think the world needs the creative community to be way more visible because it is where i find the ideas come from and the insights come from but I, of course i'm biased towards creative people <laughs> well um i share that bias as well sharing yeah. that's where i like to play that's my sandbox <laughs> absolutely thanks so much for joining me today it's been fantastic yeah thank you thank you so much Alrighty, so you heard from Sharon. What can you do to sink into your why and to focus on those tiny and small things that matter and make a huge difference to your business? Between now and next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, We'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes. 